Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Jesus is enough. Welcome to the digital stream of our Sunday message at Redeeming Hope as we continue our series, Hidden Grace, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Actually going to finish that series today. It's been awesome to go through Joseph's life and see Christ in his life and be encouraged in our faith. Before we get into that, just a few things by way of vision and announcement. Uh, We'd like to share our missional goals with you. These are our goals as we're on mission together. What are we doing here at Redeeming Hope as we serve the Lord together? Three things. Uh, explore, cultivate, and equip. Uh, Our desire is to have a culture where people can come in and explore the claims of Christ. You know, even Jesus had people come to him and say, what did you mean when you said, and they would ask a question. Questions are good. Questions aren't threatening. We, We welcome questions. We welcome that process of wrestling with the gospel and the claims of Christ to help people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Number two, cultivate. A lot of Jesus' pictures uh, in the parables were about uh, agriculture and about sowing seed and watering seed and growing seed and the seed growing up and bearing good fruit. And so uh, we want to have an environment where we're growing together in Jesus, where we're consistently watering the seed of the Word of God in our lives and in one another's lives. It's it's like we don't have this this vision to have sort of this, uh, you know, priesthood character or in in our case, the co-pastor model that we have. Uh, several priesthood figures over everyone else where, you know, if you want to go to God, you go through the the priesthood figure in your life. No, no, no. Uh, The Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers, and we want to have a discipling community where we're cultivating uh, faith, cultivating growth, spiritual formation in the lives of one another, having a vision for one another's spiritual growth, spiritual health, and spiritual formation. So this this whole uh, culture of cultivation, and growing in the gospel together. And finally, number three, equip. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that God has given the pastor, prophet, teacher, apostle, and evangelist for the equipping of the saints for works of service. In other words, it's not the job of the pastor to do all the pastoring. It's not the job of the evangelist to do all the evangelizing, but it's to teach people how to pastor others, to teach people how to reach others for Christ. It's not the job of the teacher to do all the teaching, but that the teacher would teach people how to unpack the Word of God and study the Word of God. And so uh, we have desire to see healthy, mature believers uh, equipped and growing in their faith in Christ as we walk together in the Lord. So those are just some of our missional goals. Explore, cultivate, and equip. Just some few things by way of announcement. Um, Our family day, which we've been planning for a while, we actually had to postpone it. It was going to be in August. Uh, We are currently planning it for hopefully late September. Stay tuned. We're trying to get that nailed down. Uh, And that's going to be an awesome time just to invite our community out uh, to enjoy bouncy house and barbecue and, you know, meet one another. And uh, we're looking forward to that time uh, when we flesh that out. So that's stay tuned. That's still coming. Also, if you're part of the leadership team, just a reminder that we are meeting uh, at Pastor Josh's house today at 409 Sedgwick Lane uh, in Clarksville. Uh, as we just gather and encourage one another and uh, just kind of update one another on how things are going in our different ministry areas. Uh, August 28th, which probably if you're watching this, it's 
Sunday, which would be tonight. So we're going to have our, our men's gathering at 6 p.m. Uh, again, at 409 Sedgwick Lane, uh, Pastor Josh and, and, and Rachel, uh, they, they have a gift of hospitality. Just love how they open their home. And so we're going to have a time with the men. Uh, if you're watching this on Sunday, we're going to have that time tonight at Josh's house. Looking forward to that. Also, Gospel for Life, a, a great introductory uh, time to come together and study the scriptures together, kind of learn what the theological backbone is of the church and of the gospel uh, as, as we grow in Christ. Uh, if that's something that you're interested in being a part of, uh, Pastor Josh is going to offer that on September 25th, the first session of that September 25th, sort of an introductory session for later sessions to follow. If you just want to just see what that's about, September 25th, right after church, 12.30 p.m. Again, Pastor Josh's house. So uh, you can, uh, you can uh, join them there for that. Okay. If you'd like to give to Redeeming Hope, you can give at redeeminghope.org backslash give. Uh, we are grateful uh, for those of you that give and support and partner with us as we're on mission here in Clarksville, Tennessee, and would ask that you would pray about how you might give uh, to our work uh, if you're watching this today as we, uh, as we reach this city for Christ and as we, as we not only preach the gospel but build a gospel culture uh, here at Redeeming Hope uh, as we serve this city for the glory of God. Okay, with that, we're gonna head into our final message for our series, Hidden Grace, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Today, we're actually in Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 through 21. The title of today's message is, A Heart Changed by Grace. And as we get into this final message, I just wanna mention one more time how grateful I am for Pastor Tim Keller, for his sermons, his books, and in particular, uh, his thoughts on the life of Joseph, as uh, I've gleaned a lot from listening to him. Uh, for my understanding of how we are to see uh, God working in the life of Joseph and to see Christ in Joseph's life and how that encourages us. Uh, even though it's an Old Testament story, it encourages our New Testament faith. Now, most objections to the Bible today are actually not intellectual. A lot of objections to the Bible are very personal. A lot of people won't say, I don't believe in miracles. A lot of people believe in the supernatural, they believe in uh, spirituality. I mean, a lot of the movies we have today are fully, full of you know, paranormal and supernatural activity or miraculous things. People are drawn to that and actually love to believe in those types of things and, and uh, in, believe in miracles and miraculous things, supernatural things happening. A lot of people object to the Bible because they'll say something like this. Why did God let this thing or that thing happened to me. I don't understand. How can the God of the Bible be real? How can he be a good God? How can he be a loving God? Now, the story of Joseph, as we've seen throughout this series, tackles those objections head on. Over and over again, the story of Joseph shows us that God's silence is not absence. And this means that if you reject God because of what you're seeing on the surface of your life, you're making one of the worst mistakes of your life because the Bible explains how God works through all that and he works it for the good and his, his loving hand is working even under the surface in tragedy, in pain, in confusion to show us his love and to show us his glory and to bring us into our destiny that he's prepared us for. So to know 
and believe that God and God alone controls your destiny and that even in the pain caused by others or the pain caused by circumstances, God is still working his good and sovereign plans. To believe that makes you one of the most confident people in the world. Nothing can hurt you. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this final message on Joseph today. We're going to sort of see the, the finished product of what God uh, made in him and through him in this part of the story. So at the end of this series, let's see where Joseph lands. Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Jacob's brother, or Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. They, they begin to live there. And uh, we see that his father, uh, Jacob, passed away. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 12, Genesis 50. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. And so Joseph's brothers are, they're terrified. Their father's gone. They're thinking that that was the only barrier to keep Joseph from, you know, acting out retribution against us for all the evil we did against him. They go to Joseph. Um, not sure if their father actually said what they claimed he said, you know, that forgive your brothers. Likely he did, but the scripture's not entirely clear there. Maybe the brothers were going, let's just tell him this so he didn't kill us. When they went to Joseph and they said, uh, our father gave this command, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Joseph is, it, this wounds Joseph in some way. He's, it, it breaks his heart that they would see him like this because in a sense they, they come to Joseph and they say, dad, dad said, be nice to us. Joseph wept. He'd forgiven them but they still don't trust him. They're scared of him. And this does show us that reconciliation takes time. It can come in layers and, and chapters or innings. It can be a process, especially this type of deep relational wounding that happened between Joseph and his brothers. But we see in verses 19, 20, and 21 that Joseph sort of closes the loop. He he completes the reconciliation. Let me read that again. Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Derek Kidner in his commentary wrote this about what Joseph said to his brothers here in verses 19 through 21. 
He says each sentence in the threefold reply is a pinnacle of the Old Testament and New Testament faith. Number one, to leave all the writings of wrongs to God. Number two, to see God's providing hand in man's malice. And number three, to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. These are the attitudes which anticipate Christ-likeness. So today we're talking about a heart changed by grace. What are, what are the marks of a person changed by grace? And I think uh, Derek Kidner uh, tells us what those marks are as he comments on this, uh, this conversation Joseph was having with his brothers. Number one, to leave the writings of all wrongs to God. Number two, to see God's providing hand in the midst of man's malice, to use his words. And number three, to respond to mistreatment, not just with, with forgiveness, but practical affection. These three things are the mark of a person whose heart has been changed by grace. So the way to conclude this series is going to be that we're going to look at these three marks of a changed heart and study the characteristics of a person who can truly live in this world in peace, in the peace of God. And I'll summarize it like this. Three things that Joseph does that, that show that he has the marks of a heart that's been changed by grace. Number one, he avoids God's chair. It's verse 19. Number two, he takes God's view. That's verse 20. And number three, he images God's love. That's verse 21. So let's look at this first idea of Joseph avoiding God's chair. Putting ourselves in God's chair is at the heart of most of our problems. And there's several ways that we do it. What are some ways that we sit in God's chair? Well, number one, it's when we assume that we can be our own moral authority. In the beginning, think how, in the Garden of Eden, think how small their Bible was. They had one command, don't eat of the tree. And the serpent comes and he says, eat of the tree and you will be like God. What was the temptation? What did he mean? If you decide what is right or wrong for you, rather than letting God decide that, rather than following God, you'll be, you know, you'll be happy, you'll be truly happy, you'll be complete. But in reality, they would be putting themselves in the place of God. And today we're more subtle, aren't we? In the past, people could accept the Bible in its entirety. Some people might say, but now we know that the Bible is primitive and narrow and wrong and we can't accept it. But isn't it true that 80 years from now, people might cringe at you and what you're saying or our culture and what we believe, what mainstream culture believes today? And you don't even know what parts they're going to cringe at. Their now will make our now look stupid, like our now tries to make other people's now in the past look stupid. If you give our now authority, our cultural perspective, and decide what is right or wrong in the Bible, rather than letting the Bible tell us what is right or wrong with our cultural perspective, then what you've actually done is taken your opinions, your view of the world, your view of morality, and you've put them in the place of God. You're doing exactly what the serpent asked Eve to do and Adam to do. You're doing exactly what the serpent asked our human race to do. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. A few years ago, I ended up embroiled in a public blogging war with a uh, deconstructed Christian, you know, someone who 
was de-churched and sort of falling away from the faith, who picked a fight with me publicly through his blog online. He questioned the trustworthiness and reliability of the Bible and publicly criticized my view that the Bible is God's inerrant word. In a public response, I told him lovingly, you're always giving someone authority. The, the problem with rejecting the claims of the Bible and the Bible's authority is that you're giving your own heart and its whimsical impressions final authority. And if you're asking me whether I trust the apostles and those the Holy Spirit inspired to write scripture or your heart, I'm going to pick the apostles. <laughs> you know, it would almost be like if someone watched 10 seconds of the entire Lord of the Rings series and was asked to describe what it was about. And they said something like, uh, it's about a blonde haired model who's like Robin Hood with a bow and arrow and he, he's really good with bow and arrow. So it's, it's, a, it's a story of a model, uh, Legolas, right? Now you could argue that. And maybe somebody else says, no, it's about some, you know, something else about, it's about ugly trolls or you know, nasty monsters who were born in like these egg sacks underground called orcs. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a horror movie. They're arguing, what if the author J.R.R. Tolkien walked into the room? I said, guys, it's not about any of that stuff. Here's what it's actually about. The minute the author walks into the room, he's immediately the authority, isn't he? And God created this world. We've only been around for this little slice of time. 10 seconds in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or actually, now if you include The Hobbit, there's about like six movies or something. In 10 seconds, we've been alive. To claim that we know more than God, the author of life, is incredibly arrogant. It's taking the place of God. The second way we sit in God's chair is by letting people look to you to meet their deepest needs. It's a really interesting pattern in the Bible where people would be terrified when someone would try to put them in the place of God. In 2 Kings, Naaman the Syrian, uh, who's a general, has leprosy. And he hears that there's power in Israel to heal. So the general loads up riches and he goes to the king of Israel and he says, I'd like my healing, please. The king tears his robes. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm not God. Don't, don't treat me like that. Don't, don't come to me like that. Don't approach me like that. Same thing happened with Peter uh, in the book of Acts when God was using him to perform signs and wonders and someone came to him to, to worship him. He says, don't worship me. In Isaiah chapter six, it says there's angels around the throne of God with six wings of power. And it said with two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. I just find that really interesting that these angelic, powerful angelic beings use four of six wings of power to cover themselves. It's a sign of humility. And yet today, in, in our culture, and even in the Christian culture, just the, the celebrity-driven culture that we have, uh, there's, it's, it's a common thing to see people sort of put themselves in the place of God and, and have people you know, look to them as ultimate. We need to cover our face and our feet with, with those wings. and We need to point to God. How should we be doing it in contrast to culture? Well, culture today, everyone teaches or write how to fix your problems. And that's all good and well and can be helpful. But at some point, 
We need to tear our robes like the king of Israel and say, don't look to me to meet your deepest needs. Your deepest needs can only be solved by God. Don't look to my wisdom. Don't look to my principles. Don't look to my, you know, my seminar, my ideas, my celebrity. Tear our robes and say, look to God. Same thing can happen. Don't when two people start falling in love. They start feeling, wow, this person's gonna complete me. But at some point in your relationship, each person should, in a sense, tear their clothes. A little, okay, not right off if you're in a relationship, uh, especially if you're not married. Uh, Tear our clothes figuratively and say, you need God, not me. You ultimately need God. He completes you, not me. And I think that's how oftentimes marriages can go bad. We look to our spousal partner to be ultimate for us and they become our functional Jesus in a way. Don't look to me, look to God, we should say to one another. Because if we look to a person to give us that which only God can give us and be what only God can be, we'll eventually shatter our lives to pieces. So we let people look to us to meet our deepest needs. It's another way we sit in God's chair. Another way we sit in God's chair is excessive worry. Excessive worry comes when you think you know exactly how it has to happen and you're afraid that God won't get it right. You say, I know what should have happened and what should happen. And we get this anxiety because we're, we don't trust God in that moment. If instead you take yourself out of God's chair and say this, I'd like that to happen, but I'm not sure if that's what's best to happen. I don't completely know what's best. That keeps your worry in check and it keeps us out of God's chair. And the last way that I'll mention that we sit in God's chair, which is apropos to this story, is we sit in God's chair when we hold a grudge against someone, when we keep a grudge. What is Joseph saying? Am I in the place of God to his brothers? It's pretty scary what Joseph is saying. He's saying that every person who holds a grudge against another person and seeks retribution, seeks to get even, is sitting in God's chair. You're trying to be God. Romans 12 verse 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's work Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. What is God saying in that verse? He's saying, get out of my chair. Kind of reminds me of this game I used to play with my kids called Get Out of My Chair, where uh, my kids, you know, like three or four of my kids would, would sit in a chair and I'd say, get out of my chair. And I'd have to go and grab them and I'd, and I'd pull them off and throw them on the couch behind me. And as soon as, you know, as soon as I'd, throw one on the couch and turn around and grab another kid and go to throw them on the couch. The one I just threw on the couch would be getting back on. So it was this endless cycle of, uh, you know, my kids get sitting in my chair and me trying to throw them out. It was an exhausting game. I guess it was fun. Um, it would get, you know, house full of wrestlers. It would get very violent at times. But um, I think God, I think sometimes God's like that with people. He's like, Get out of my chair. Somebody else goes, get out of my, all these people trying to be God, trying to sit in God's chair. If you sit in judgment of someone who has wronged you, brother, sister, friend, you're sitting in God's chair. Three thoughts on that. On this idea of sitting in God's chair of judgment over someone holding a grudge. Number one, only God has the right to sit in judgment. The final seat of judgment. 
Number two, only God has the knowledge to sit in judgment. You don't know what they've suffered already. You don't know what God has planned. You don't know. To sit there and wish this or that would happen in their lives is to put yourself in God's chair. And number three, only God has the power to judge someone else without becoming evil himself. This is a frightening point. Only God has the power to judge someone else without becoming evil himself. When you don't forgive, you become hard and cold. When you don't forgive, you get filled with self-pity. When you don't forgive, you repay evil with evil and become evil. I guess it's a day for Lord of the Rings analogies, but remember the ring, the whole premise of the of the book that Tolkien wrote? If you take the dark ring of power to defeat the dark Lord, the lesson of the book is you become like the dark Lord. It seduces you. It becomes it becomes uh, something that tempts you and draws you into evil. And the great irony that Tim Keller actually pointed out in all this is that the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. And the fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. Then you become happy, joyful, kind, generous, like God, not self-centered, sacrificial, gracious. So Joseph doesn't sit in God's chair. The second thing Joseph does is Joseph takes God's view of the situation. If you're hiking in the mountains and you're lost, staying in the valley won't help you. What do you need to do to figure out where you are, especially if you don't have a map? It'd be really helpful to get up high where you can see. And then you can go, oh, I, I, now I see how this is connected or or that's connected, actually, with another Lord of the Rings analogy. Uh, we were just watching, uh, I think it was The Hobbit, and, and they're lost in this forest with the big spiders. They're lost in this forest, and uh, Bilbo goes way up high, and he looks over the trees, and he finally sees where they are and, and, and what's happening. And sometimes we need to get up high to see what God is doing. How do you look at your troubles? From the top or from the bottom? Joseph was looking at his troubles from God's perspective, from the top down. When in verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. He's saying, yeah, you did evil. Yeah, it was wrong. And he uses the word evil, but you weren't in control. God allowed this because he had a plan. You, in a sense, are the second cause, he's saying to his brothers. The first cause was God. Not that God performed the evil or delighted or rejoiced in evil or, or ever does, but he arranged it for his glorious purposes in Joseph's life. He allowed it as a vehicle to get Joseph somewhere. God's top-down view of our troubles keeps them together in a way that makes sense of them. But the human down-up view splits our troubles apart. You only see pieces. You don't see the picture. Look at the two parts of what Joseph said. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's, it's amazing. I mean, this, that th those things are both true at the same time. This gives us a spectrum of how people think, doesn't it? You have optimists and pessimists. Optimists say troubles are the exception. 
there's good in the midst of evil. And the pessimists say, troubles are the norm. The world is completely evil. The problem is that not either of those, but it's the either or which is normal in our human nature. Down in the valley, we tend to look at life like this. If things are going good, then God is good. If things are going bad, then God is bad. And, you know, God's always doing something else. There's always a third option. You know, sometimes people come to me and they, and they, they bring this either or view of their circumstances to me. My husband left me and either my life goes on uh, without him and, and I live in depression the rest of my life or he comes home and I'll be happy again. <clears throat> and not that I don't root for marriages to be restored, but sometimes there's a third option. And it's not either or, it's both and. Joseph's perspective holds two things together that the human perspective can't. Joseph doesn't say either or. He says it's a both and. Life is painful and hard, but God is good. Joseph is up on the mountain. The Bible is very honest about life and pain. It says life is hard. Remember, it's the jerks in the story of Job that suggests that it's all blessings and easy for those who follow God. And if it's not easy and if you're not blessed, then you must be doing something wrong. It's, it's the jerks who think like that. But Joseph says, yes, life is very hard, but God is good and works all things for the good. And at some point he will do it, even if, if it's the last day in human history. <clears throat> he will work it for the good. Folks, this is a radical new perspective and an incredible resource for the Christian that provides peace, comfort, joy, hope, and confidence. Some of you may lose income, jobs, fail tests, lose friends. While the rest of the world will have to stop into the bar to deal with it, you won't. Remember Joseph. Remember his father Jacob. Jacob lied, deceived, cheated, betrayed. But because he sinned, he met Rachel. Oh, so then it's okay that he sinned? That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely not. He didn't have to sin. He shouldn't have sinned. And he's responsible for his sin. So then his whole life was ruined by the sin, right? No, not at all. Jesus Christ was not plan B. Jacob sinned, but Jesus was plan A the whole time. And God eventually brought Jesus into the world through Jacob's sin and through Jacob's failure. <clears throat> what am I saying? As a Christian, you can't screw up your life. No power on earth, not even you, can put yourself into plan B. Joseph is saying to his brothers, you can't sink me. You meant it for evil. You meant it to destroy me. It couldn't because God was in control the whole time. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, reading out of the NIV. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amazing. <clears throat> We're getting up high. We're looking from a top-down perspective. We're looking with eyes of faith. You know, by God's grace, I've been able to have an impact on a lot of people in my ministry years, my ministry career, so to speak. <clears throat> but you know why I'm standing here today? 1975. 
there was a, a teenage boy on a farm in eastern New York in the town of Wright. His name is Bruce, Bruce Wolford. And that boy had an accident with some farm equipment and he died. He had a brother named Jim, Jimmy, who was running from God. And God used that situation to turn his heart and bring him to Christ. Jim eventually planted a church in little Galville, New York. One day, this family came walking up the road. This busted up family. And they came to the church. That mother came in that building with her little kids traipsing behind her. And eventually that family accepted Christ. And the two sons in that family both went into pastoral ministry. Both went into ministry. I was one of those boys. And you know, if it wasn't for the tragedy that happened in the Wolford family back in the mid-1970s, Jim might have never turned his heart to Christ. And I never, he wouldn't have planted that church and my family never would have come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Do you see, do you see how it's all connected? I see that now. There's no way they could have seen that. As they took their loved one and put his body in the front yard and covered him up. And people came over weeping at the loss of their loved one. Now, I know it's incredibly self-centered to strictly look at it that way, because really what I've just said is one of a million reasons that that happened. God always has so many reasons why he does what he does. My point is, though, not even death could mess up God's plan. Joseph avoids God's chair. Joseph takes God's view. And finally, number three, Joseph images God's love. When Joseph says in verse 21 to his brothers, don't be afraid, I'll provide for you and your children. He's loving his enemies. You say, I can't love my enemies. Well, how did Joseph do it? Well, points one and two, avoiding God's chair and taking God's view are a prerequisite for number three, imaging God's love. He doesn't put himself in God's chair. He has humility. I'm not better than them. He has God's view. He's confident. They don't control my destiny. If you're going to love your enemies, you have to have enormous humility and confidence. The reason Joseph had these is that he knew that God loved him, though he didn't deserve it. Once again, grace makes an appearance. Joseph knew something of unmerited, of the unmerited, undeserved grace of God. And only when we see that our good works didn't save us do we have these two traits. On one hand, we're humbled because we see that we're undeserving. But on the other hand, we have assurance because we see that his love is not resting on my performance. Joseph's understanding of grace toward him gave him genuine affection and forgiveness toward his brothers. Well, I'm not Joseph. And that's right, you're not. And you can actually do better. Why? Because a truer and better, a greater than Joseph has come. In Luke 7, 28, it says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, because of the grace that Jesus provided through the cross, the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than one of the greatest uh figures in the old covenant. And I'm talking about John the Baptist now. Sometimes we don't remember that he was actually the last prophet of the Old Testament in a sense. And Jesus says the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? Because Christ within us 
makes us great. And he, and he gives us this great resource beyond anything Joseph or David or Moses ever had. They had a general sense of grace, but we have a very specific knowledge of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Joseph was betrayed and did not put himself in the place of God. Good thing, because he wasn't God. Jesus was also betrayed. Jesus was also given a cup of terrible suffering. But Jesus Christ, though he deserved to be in the place of God, wouldn't do it. Why? For you. For you. For you and for me. And to believe that will make you more humble than Joseph. Why? Because we know that Jesus died on the cross. Because we know that. We see exactly how bad we are, don't we? That God needed to, we're so bad that God needed to send his own son to die for us. Joseph didn't know that God would actually have to die for him to save him. We know that now. And so we can, we can experience a humility that goes deeper into our hearts because of that understanding. But on the other hand, the gospel makes us more confident than Joseph was. Because when you see how far God was willing to go for your good, the cross, how much more assurance do you need that God loves you and means everything for your good? than to see that he gave his son on the cross. If you believe in the Bible, the God of the Bible, use this resource, this amazing resource that God has provided, the knowledge of God's grace, his power, and his love in our suffering. Use that resource. Use the story of Joseph over and over again in the days to come to encourage you and point to Jesus. It's been a resource for me. It's been one of the uh, stories that I've gone back to over and over again and reminding myself of God's grace and love and sovereignty and that his silence is not absence and he's working all things for the good. So it's been one of, one of the stories I've used to encourage others a lot. Remember Joseph and remember the greater than Joseph. Is there any greater example of how suffering turned into glory than in the life of Christ? Three quick thoughts as we apply this message and close this time together. Number one, be aware of your tendency to sit in God's chair. Don't sit in God's chair. Take God's view, image God's love. Number two, remember how God loved us while we were yet in sin. And that'll help you resist the idea that he's against you somehow. No, he's for you. He loved us when we were incapable. We weren't even around to do anything good. The Bible says while we were yet in sin. That, that literally means while we were condemning God, while we were giving God the finger, he gave himself for us. How much more will he give himself for us and work things for our good now that we love him and follow him? And finally, number three, use the resource of the gospel to build up your heart and to build up others through its testimony as you encourage others in the gospel. It's good news. It's good news. Something has been done. It is finished, and we can stand here confident that we are God's children, that he's working in our lives like he worked in Joseph's life, that there's hidden grace, and that if he did not spare his own son, how will he not freely give us all things? Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends watching this digital stream, remember when you remember Joseph, 
Jesus is your Joseph. And Jesus is enough. May God's grace be with you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.